consistency. I thought this was pretty impressive. I sent them the PowerPoint before France won the World Cup, but I knew that they were going to do it. Um, but this is, I guess, a great model team of consistency. A team that over however many weeks the World Cup's been going on uh, have proved now to be the best team in the world. They're a team that has shown real consistency uh, in all sorts um, of difficult situations, uh, of difficult games that they face. And I quite like the analogy of a football team. You know, that these guys train for hours and hours a day. Don't get me wrong, so I think they six times a week. But these guys train hard, they do well. They know their opponents and they give everything that they've got, as you will have seen today when they steamrolled Croatia. We could also add a picture of Jockey, but that might have been safer. Another model example of consistency. Paul, away from the football analogy, Paul has a special love and respect that we looked at for the church at Philippi. And it was one of the most mature churches at the time. But what's quite reassuring is even though it was a mature church, it still had a few problems. And Paul wanted to leave them with this instruction and remind them how they should conduct themselves. The only word in this passage, the word only, translates probably more accurately as only and always. Only and always let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what he stresses at the beginning of this instruction that he gives to them is this is the one essential thing. The one essential thing for you in your Christian life is that you walk and you live a life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, he answers it in that sentence. The answer is life. The answer is abundant life, is true life, is free life. To go into the Greek word, the original meaning of this word life that's in the sentence means to live as a citizen of a free state. Or to take an active part in the affairs of the state. And you see, to the ancient Greeks, where you lived, the state wasn't just where, where you were. It wasn't just where your house was. It wasn't where you commuted from. It was a lot more than that. It was a society that wanted to see others succeed. It was a society built on cooperation, built on partnership, that wanted to see others do well. And nothing was done in isolation. To do well was as much about your community moving forward and benefiting as it was about you personally. Therefore, this idea of to live as a citizen, it also means that being a citizen of somewhere comes with rights and privileges, but it also comes with duties and responsibilities. So we have this opening line. Only and always let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying you have life. You have life in its abundance. You have life to the full. You have freedom. You have partnership. You have relationship with God. That comes with such incredible rewards. It comes with such incredible 
privileges of being part of the family of God. But it also comes with a duty. It also comes with responsibility. We unpack the word ambassador, what it means to be an ambassador of Christ this morning. And this kind of ties in a bit there. This idea of being a representative, of having a duty, of having to live a life that is worthy. We don't grow in isolation. I think that's something Paul tries to pull out with his wording here. That we grow best as a community. That's why when we gather together, when we study scripture together, when we fellowship together, it's such a great thing. The church isn't this static organization that doesn't move, but it's a body that's continually growing, continually getting stronger. I love this quote, the most powerful weapon against the enemy is not a stirring sermon or a powerful book, but it is the consistent life of a Christian. I want to tell you a story. Uh, I got a disciplinary at work once. Um, I worked, not here. <laughs> I worked in a theatre as a part-time job. Um, and we had the singing kettle coming past. I don't know if some of you the singing kettle. Uh, yeah, I thought I know it. Um, so I had to watch the singing kettle five times in three days. So I tweeted, can't believe we've got to watch the singing kettle again at work. Something like that. Um, totally broke the social media policies. Um, and the next day we were going into the theatre to remove some of the wheelchair seats and the, the guys were rehearsing on stage and one of them went <clears throat> so which one of you is it that doesn't want to work today because they don't want to see our show again as my boss was standing beside me so I get weaked into the office I get this disciplinary I get ordered to delete it and whatever else and I thought it was kind of funny I didn't do much wrong but I broke the social media policy of my work and I guess in that context, I didn't conduct myself in a manner that was worthy of my employer. I didn't hold my job in a high regard. And I think it's helpful to reflect on this question. Am I conducting myself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? We should walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Ephesians 4 tells us. Walking. Walking is something natural. It's like breathing. It's something that we need to do. Don't just talk about life of worthiness. Because that's what hypocrites do. That's what Paul tells us. But put it into practice. Go out. Go and show it. Make it natural. Make it as natural as walking. Living a life that glorifies God. We should want to conduct ourselves in a worthy manner because our citizenship is in heaven. We don't behave a certain way to have our, book, our name written in the book of life, but because our name is written in the book of life, we should want to acknowledge, we should want to live a life that acknowledges that author. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians. 
Use every opportunity as Paul did to show grace. Use every opportunity you have to work harder than you've ever worked before. I was thinking of this scenario, this, this thought that you get called into your uh, boss's office one day and they say, right, a month's time, you're gone. You're fired on the spot, see you later, cheerio. And I was thinking of this, is these kind of two world views that we can have. These two things that we can do. A worldly view says, stuff you. You just want to take my employment, therefore I'm going to steal all the staples that I can. I'm going to talk about everybody I can behind your back. I'm going to backstab you. I'm going to walk out this last paycheck and I'm going to go on the way out. But a Christian worldview doesn't do that. A Christian worldview, a consistently Christian worldview that walks in a life that is worthy of the gospel says, you know what, this last month I'm going to work harder than I've ever worked before. I'm going to be an example in the workplace this month. I'm not going to talk negatively about my boss, no matter the circumstances that I face in my unemployment. I thought it was just an interesting, an interesting situation to put yourselves in. Or what about family disagreements? We've all got family members that we don't get on with. It might hit in there, but it definitely challenges me. But does it display Christ in not speaking to somebody for months, for years, because of something that's happened? Holding grudges, things that have become cemented in our hearts that are so deep down, we don't feel we can take out. We don't feel we can forgive. But yet we're still called to walk the walk. We're still called to live a life that is worthy. A life that is consistent. The definition of the word worthy is having or showing qualities that deserve the specified action or regard. I'm not worthy. Plain and simple. I'm not worthy of the specified action or regard. I'm not worthy of God. I'm not worthy of the salvation that God has given to me. But I'm called to a life that wants to get there. I'm called to a life, as each of you are, called to a life that wants to be in a place where everything that we do is worthy. We used the analogy last week, it says you have a telescope. And the stars, that a telescope magnifies stars as we as people are to be telescopes, are to magnify Christ to people. Consistency speaks volumes. The second thing we find in the second half of verse 27, it says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one gospel with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm, again, a word with a military sort of air to it. It means to struggle. It means to suffer for the cause. It means holding your ground, digging your heels in, and ready, ready for whatever comes. I thought this was quite interesting, but the word striving in Greek is the word sonathleo which translates striving side by side, which gives us our English word for athletics. 
Paul pictures the church as a team. He reminds them that teams win victories, individuals don't. There was a division in the church in Philippi. And again, it highlights to us that even the best, most mature, most supportive churches have their flaws. We know that from chapter 4 that there were two women that weren't getting along, that people were starting to take sides with what was ever going on. We must always be vigilant with the vision, address it, and deal with it. I was looking for some reasons the church is split, and I found this survey where people commented the most ridiculous reasons they knew for church splits. I want to give you five of them. The first was over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. The second was a fight of whether or not to build a children's playground or use the land for a cemetery. The next one was a deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. That means fists. There was a petition sent around one church that all staff must be clean shaven. Sorry. And two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee that they use. I can get that one. That's, yeah, I can go with that. But in one of the churches, they switched brands. And in the other church, they simply went for a stronger blend. And people actually left the church over the type of coffee that was used. It's automatic. The fruit-bearing churches, the churches that are doing good for the gospel of Christ, are getting caught up, are getting divided, and are being split over what is utter nonsense. But the enemy delights. The enemy delights in the division of the church. Divide and conquer is the message of the enemy. As a strong, as an undivided body that seeks God to be the center of our community. It is a hard unit to break down. But a church where people are raging, where people are divided over the color of a carpet, is not a strong, is not a united church. And it's a church that is easily overcome by the wicked one. I quite like David Attenborough. If you ever watch any of his programs, I've learned that if you take a big herd of something like wildebeest, big things that lions can't attack, the way that they get in there is they divide them. They try and corner the little one, take it off to the side so that they can take it off. Because as a unit, they're big. They're a strong unit as a group of animals. And they're almost undefeatable. Strive together. We are stronger together. There will always be members of a team that want the limelight, that grab headlines, that want to be the best, that want to be the most well-known person. We looked at that again last week, how that was something Paul was dealing with. These guys that wanted to get one up on him. But the church, unlike that, we are called to stand firm in one spirit, striving for truth and against the enemy. But like a team, a team follows rules. Like us, we have rules. There is one goal 
of this team. There is one goal of the church. And it's to honour Christ. And it's to do his will. If we work together, we get closer to that goal. If we win the, if we win the prize, we glorify God within that. with those that you fellowship with? Does it go deeper than a cup of coffee? Does it go deeper than the occasional chat? If you have a grudge against somebody within the fellowship, I urge you, go and sort it out. Because for a body of believers, that is not good enough. How do we become more united? By striving for the common goal. By striving to do God's will and helping each other to do so. How often does it actually become the church that can stop us from growing? Verse 28 to 30 shows us something of confidence. The three verses read, I'm not frightened in anything by your opponent. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same co uh, conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I think this brings in a great point. I think it brings in a great place to end. This idea, this analogy that says not frightened in anything by your opponent has this picture attached to it of something to do with a horse shying away from battle. That we shouldn't run blindly into a fight, no. But also we shouldn't avoid the enemy. Paul in this gives us something of an encouragement for battle. Why shouldn't we be frightened? I think it's summed up in three words. Three words that have brought me such encouragement in my Christian walk. God is sovereign. And I think this I think Paul has such a phenomenal grasp on the sovereignty of God. And that is why we see such a joyful and strong man in his circumstances. But to know that God is sovereign is for me to know that God is bigger than me. It's for me to know that God is bigger than my circumstances. That God is out of time. He is not constrained to time. My tomorrow, my future is not God's future. Why? Because time is his creation. My God knows all and he sees all. And do you know why that's exciting? Because it means that God's in control. And that's what Paul got. Paul got that God was in control. That as much as we feel uncertainty, to God there is no uncertainty. Because God knows all things. God's got a plan. God's got this idea. We just need to trust in the sovereignty of God. 
Yes, we can't see into the future. Yes, we don't know what's around the corner, but God does. And that should reassure us above anything else. This tells us it doesn't matter the opponent. Why? Because Christ has overcome it. Christ has overcome the enemy. And in this we are called to stand firm, to strive together against the enemy. I said it last week, but the church is a battlefield and not a playground. Who were the opponents that the Philippians faced? They were most likely this group of legalistic Jews who lived in Philippi that had been attacking the church that Paul speaks so strongly against in chapter 3. But there is opposition from everywhere. There is opposition inside and outside of the church. It feels like often for the church it's a losing battle. When we see statements, when we see doctrines, when we see things coming out of other places that brand themselves as churches, it can't help but break you to think of sometimes the people that say they are ambassadors of Christ are saying and saying that they believe. Our God is sovereign. Our God is a God that so unjustly pours his grace, that so unjustly pours his mercy upon us. And we fall so, so far short, yet God continues to save us. I think we can be quite bad for this idea that salvation is a one-off event. I was saved way back then, hallelujah. But God continues to save us. As long as we sin, we need saved. Our salvation isn't in us, it's in nothing we do, but it is in God. Christ took every sin that we have, that we will, that we can ever commit on his shoulders of Calvary. And he rose to break the bondage of sin. And though Paul was chained, the gospel, the message of Christ, was not. Jesus Christ broke the shackles of sin so that we might be free. And we're called to live lives in that freedom. There is no other that saves but Christ. Have confidence. Have confidence in this awesome and this sovereign God. Live a life that wants to magnify this God. Live a life that wants to glorify in everything that you do. This wonderful, this incredible God that gives us everything that we have. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him but also suffer for the sake, for his sake. A Christian who stands firm logically can expect to suffer. This is where it gets scary. Redemptive history. The story of the Bible tells us that those who believe in the word of God, those who are uncompromising eh, to speak his word, 
Those that live lives that do not yield to anything in this world, but live in accordance with the commands of God, often pay for their courage. They pay for the resolution with their lives. From the ancient prophets all the way to Jesus, we see this. What does it tell us? It tells us that our believing and our doing have to come together. That they are inseparable. I don't think sometimes I recognise how fortunate we are. How fortunate that we are that we face no threat of physical punishment for our faith in this country. We're born a couple of thousand miles in any direction that could be so vastly different. But Paul reminds his dear friends in Philippi that so many have died for Christ and they must be prepared to do the same. I think Paul saw suffering as something of a privilege. If I'm suffering, it means I'm doing something right. It's a difficult question to ask and it's a hard thing to know because we don't face it. But are we prepared? Are we prepared to suffer so that the name of Christ may be glorified? Maybe you are. I know a lot of stories of people in the workplace that have a difficult time because they profess Christ. Have lost relationships with family members that aren't Christians because they've just had enough. People who've given up social circles and things that they enjoy doing because they just can't be a part of those environments. And I guess in some sort of way that is a kind of suffering that we know. It's this idea of turning against the world and turning to Christ that has real and tangible consequences. How can we not want to live a life for our God. A God who so richly blesses. A God who is sovereign above everything. A God that holds the world in his hands. A God that loves you no matter how many times you mess up. Living for God, as Paul has demonstrated, means through the good and through the bad. We must be prepared to do more than just rejoice in the good times. But we must be prepared to suffer for his sake. As Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In death we meet our Saviour, there's nothing greater. We can have confidence in our God. Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw or had and now hear I now hear that I still have. The Philippians were suffering something in the extension of Paul's suffering that he had found when he was in Philippi. It's a conflict that stems from preaching the gospel and defending Christ. They were fighting the same battles. They were fighting and moving, standing firm as a unit. The advancement of the gospel in Philippi was dependent on how they did in their struggles. It was determined by their strength 
by their steadfastness, by their striving. To finish this off, there's a couple of words that I've used a few times. These two words being single-minded. Being single-minded means having joy in the midst of the battles. Being single-minded produces consistency. It produces unity and confidence. We need to be single-minded for Christ. Yes, we all face difficult circumstances. Yes, we face the difficult situations. But we can find joy and satisfaction in them if we seek Christ. We must have confidence in what we believe. Confidence that only comes from our relationship with God. Confidence that comes with spending time with Him. With seeking Him. And our God is a sovereign God. A God who controls, a God who knows all. And we can rest knowing that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That we are in the hands of our sovereign God. I think Philippians chapter 1 shows us what it looks like to follow Christ. And I don't know how you've walked in here tonight. But the beauty of our God is that we don't have to walk out of here the same way that we walk in here. That God's transformation, if we seek it, is there for us. As we come to communion, I want you to think, to picture that painful image of Christ hanging on that tree. Of Christ hanging there. With everything that you have ever done wrong on his shoulders. And Christ said, I've got it. Christ said, I will take it. Again and again and again. What incredible God we serve. Let's pray. Thank you.